Let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Acts. Book of Acts chapter 13. We're continuing our study on the early church. And as we've looked at it, we've seen how it should influence our thinking 20 centuries later, both in terms of getting back to the reality and simplicity of ministry and also in examining and being inspired by the the deep commitment of their their lives in the early church to the Lord and to the work of God. Now, there's so much we can learn from the book of Acts, especially as it confronts the traditions and and the secular influences, and I say that carefully, the traditions and the secular influences that have infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ and in many ways have distracted us and even pulled us off track of what God intended. What is so powerful and compelling about the book of Acts is that when you look at it, there's no denying the power of the apostles' ministry. And there's no denying the obvious anointing that the Holy Spirit put on the early church. And that stands in a very stark contrast to to the kind of man-centered, man-driven philosophy of the church in the 21st century. And I wonder what Paul would have had to say about that. I wonder how he would have addressed that, because it's not hard to conclude that some of the methods that we have come up would be utterly ineffective and almost ridiculous if we try to put them into the middle of the book of Acts. Now, when we finished our study last week, we saw that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark had set out on this first, what we call, missionary journey. What they're doing is they're officially taking the gospel now in regions outside of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even up into Syria. Now they're going out in the Mediterranean and then they're going to go up north into what is now Turkey and into Greece and into Italy and the gospel is now going to spread. And they're taking it specifically to the Gentiles. But even as they set out, it's interesting to notice that the first stop they make in each town is at the synagogue. Not only because that was the most logical place to, to preach the gospel. Obviously, you can't go into the temple of a false god and start preaching the gospel. So they would go to the church. But also because the gospel still needed to go to the Jews. God had not completely forgotten the Jews. He hadn't said, well, forget it. You guys messed up and I'm just going to go to the Gentiles. Uh, Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God and salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jews still needed to hear the gospel, but now the primary focus has shifted to the Gentiles. And even though some Jews believe, and we'll see that in the text this morning, what they did in rejecting the gospel and in continuing the pattern that they had had all throughout the Old Testament simply served as a reminder that uh, man needs God, that man needs Jesus Christ. And that gave the apostles further impetus to keep going to the Gentiles who would receive it. Now, what really struck me this week in my study is the depth of passion, both in the rejection of the gospel and in the acceptance of the gospel. There is such a a deep passion and such a deep response here that we don't really see in our culture today. I was thinking about that principle yesterday. It just kind of hit me all of a sudden because I was observing how much technology has changed our reaction to things that are exciting. I was down at the, the uh, uh, Recplex watching Jake's hockey game, and I had read an article on Friday, uh, and it, it really backed up this point. 
that said that because of the pace of new technology, because things have happened so quickly and the advancements have have taken such now a, a point of excellence, there's almost not much more we can do to make it better, the author was saying, and he was a technology geek. He wasn't me because I don't know anything about that. But his point was we've stopped being impressed by things that are amazing. We've stopped being overwhelmed by what we can do and how we can access technology. And what that has done, the author's point, and I believe he's right and I saw evidence of it yesterday, is that it's dulled us emotionally. I was at this uh, recplex down there and I was waiting for Jake's game to start and I was in a room uh, smaller than this, and there were about 30, 40 people there of all ages. And I looked around, and everybody, probably two-thirds of the people that were there, were looking at a screen. Now, even though somebody was sitting right next to them, even though kids were saying, Daddy, Daddy, Mommy, Mommy, you know how kids do that? Anybody else have kids that do that? And, and, you know, there was a lot of commotion, a lot of movement. People were eating. But as I watched around the room, By and large, most people were quietly staring at a screen. Now, no one who was looking at their iPod or cell phone or iPad or whatever device they had, not one person was showing a trace of joy. Not one person was showing a trace of amazement over what they were seeing. And then I watched as the game got ready to start and people came in as the game's about to start. The people in in the reaction... They were very muted and very passive, almost like they were bothered. They they were having to leave their screen, and yet they weren't having any joy from their screen, but they were bothered that they were going to be interrupted about it. Now, I don't know if if that is because of technology or or because of the state of the world or the economy or the fact that people are tired or busy or whatever. I don't think anything's fully to blame. But I think it's interesting that the strong, real, passionate emotions – that we see in Acts, really now in our culture, are the exception rather than the norm. And that's even true in churches. For example, the prevailing trend in Christianity is that our worship services, and I want to put those words in quote, that our worship services should be packaged. They should be planned to the second. They should be programmed with lights and media. And any deviation from the plan is highly discouraged. But I believe that what that's done, and I think this is almost undeniable, is that it's made services feel more artificial and contrived rather than a full expression of praise to God. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Because the passion has been pulled out of what we're doing because we're so dulled by all that we have. Now, that's what makes this text so fascinating and so exciting. Because here we see authentic, powerful reactions to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some are opposed and some are receptive. And in looking at these reactions this morning, there's a spiritual principle that the Lord wants the challenges with. So let's take the text. We've got a lot to read. Verses 16, we're going to start in verse 13. Verses 16 to 20, uh, excuse me, verses 16 to 36 are a pretty familiar summation of Jewish history and the gospel but I think it's important that we get that context. So we're going to read those uh, fairly quickly, and then we're going to really concentrate on verses 42 to 52. So hang with me, all right? I'm going to read a lot now. Let's start in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whom feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brethren, verse 26, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when, he had, when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. In other words, all of us. We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of, his, of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised up did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Then through him everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be free through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed. So the things spoken of the prophets may not come up to you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel you per and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Stop right there for a minute. It's a lot of text, and it's a lot of history. So let's start with where they are and what they're doing. Now, in this leg of the trip, if you guys would throw up the map for me, Paul and Barnabas leave the island of Crete. That's that little island that's out here in the middle of the Mediterranean, in the upper right corner, and they go up into Pamphylia. And eventually, they go to the top part where you see that little circle, and it was a place called Pisidian Antioch. Now, Pisidian Antioch, was a very important Roman city. And it had been made the capital of the area, and this is all kind of that middle section there, of the area of the province of Galatia. Now, Pisidian Antioch was important, and you need to know this background, because it was a hub for military training. 
and it was also a center of economic and religious activities. That made it a place where there were a lot of different cultures and a lot of different powerful people and a lot of people of influence, and there were a lot of different belief systems all melded together. So it made it both hostile ground for the gospel and fertile ground for the gospel. Now, Paul visited Pisidian Antioch on each of his three missionary journeys. And he gave his first sermon to the Gentiles. We just read it. It's right here in Acts chapter 13. And eventually, this city, Pisidian Antioch, would become the epicenter for Christianity in Asia Minor. It would become the place where the gospel would really bloom forth. Now, if you put up the next slide, please, this is a picture of what it looks like today. And that structure you see right in the middle of the frame is the remains of a Byzantine church under which they have excavated and they have found a first century building that was the synagogue that Paul preached in. So when you see that building right there in Pisidian Antioch, underneath that, right there, is where Paul stood and gave this sermon. Now imagine what it was like as they're having their service in the synagogue and Paul and Barnabas walk in. This is like every preacher's worst nightmare, right? All of a sudden, they walk in and they sit down. They don't make a show of themselves. They just come and they sit in the back and they're listening to what's going on. The officials recognize them. And they say, hey, you guys need to come up and and speak to us. Give Give a word of exhortation to the people. What they're probably expecting is that they will come in and they'll encourage the people in their Judaism and that they'll not use this opportunity to say anything controversial and that it'll be all nice and good. Well, they're wrong. They're wrong. Because from the moment Paul stands up, and you can see this here in verse uh, 16, from the moment he stands up, he gets right to the point. He goes right to the heart of the issue. And he's not accusing. There's nothing condemning here. He's not acting as a judge. He's not pointing his finger at them. He's not uh, taking a hostile tone. He's just saying, We need to understand what's happened. And I want you to notice how he addresses them in the middle of verse 16. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God. Now, we don't know if that is supposed to be the same thing or whether he's drawing a distinction here. Some of the Jews might have seen that as a little slam. Some of them might have said, well, what does that mean? But the fact is that Paul is going to talk about this very issue. He's going to talk about the fact that the Jewish nation had had every opportunity to trust the Lord, and they had failed to do that. And in the span of about three to five minutes, it took me about two and a half minutes to read that text. So let's give Paul the benefit of the doubt. Let's double the time. In the span of five minutes, he gives a succinct history of the Jewish nation, and he hits all the highlights of how God had blessed Israel and how God had worked to keep them humble and keep them in the center of his will, and how he had brought Christ to be their redeemer. Paul's emphasis here on God's deliverance and God's faithful fulfillment of his promises is so strong that this actually, this message right here, is the most God-centered text in the book of Acts. In fact, those of you that are taking the, the How to Study the Bible class, right? We know that we look for repetition of concepts, right? We, we draw our little our little logos and our little icons, and we find all the times that a word's mentioned. Well, let me tell you about this text. Between verses 16 and 39, what we just read 
that sermon, Paul talks about God, Jesus, him, and he. We lump all those together. From 16 to 39, he talks about it 45 times. In other words, in the span of 23 verses, it's God, Jesus, God, Jesus, God, Jesus, God, Jesus. And there's no way that that's accidental. The Holy Spirit is sending a strong message that trusting in works and trusting in your heritage like the Jews did, or trusting in acquiring wisdom and being your own God like the Gentiles believe, that both of those systems fall short of salvation through Christ. And look at how he lays it out. Just recap, just skim as I talk. He reminds them of all that God's done for them. He chose you as a nation. He led you out of Egypt. I love the line in verse 18. It's my favorite. He put up with you in the desert. He he abided you. He, He allowed you to be crazy. Aren't you grateful for all the times in your life when the Lord put up with you? Aren't you glad God is slow to, slow to anger and rich in compassion? I know I am. And then he says he destroyed seven nations so you could occupy the promised land. And he gave you judges when you rebelled. And he gave you a king you didn't need, which you proved by choosing the wrong guy. And then he gave you the right king. He gave you David. And David was a man after his heart. And on and on it goes. All of this proving an essential fact. Israel, you had every advantage. You had everything a person could want. You had everything a nation could want. You were chosen. You had God's presence. You were led by him. He gave you guidelines in his law. He forgave you when you sinned. He took you to your own land that he promised to your forefathers. He defeated your enemies. He gave you the best possible leader. You had everything. And even with all of that, You proved without a shred of doubt that man can't save himself. God gave you every single advantage. So if there's any way man could say, I can do it, I can save myself, you would have proved it because you had all the advantage, but you didn't. You completely rebelled against him. You rejected his leadership. You rejected his way of living righteously. You turned against him and you have proved the point. And yet, look at verse 23. He still sent Christ. Even when you turned against him, even when you got arrogant and smug, even when you said, we don't need you, God, even when you turned fully away from him, he still sent Christ. Because you needed a Savior. And we need a Savior. And the Gentiles need a Savior. And the Jews couldn't possibly have missed that now. And the Gentiles were about to get the gospel too. That's why when you look at verse 26, Paul does draw a distinction. He says, there are those of you that are depending on your heritage as Jews. And there are those of you that actually fear God. And this is where the message is very direct. He says, when I was back in Jerusalem, I was part of the crowd that rejected Jesus. I was part of the crowd that refused to understand the prophets. Oh, listen, I'm a Pharisee. We knew the prophecies. We knew what Isaiah said. We knew what Daniel said. We knew all the prophecies about Jesus. We understood them. 
But when Jesus came, we don't want anything to do with it. We just looked the other way and closed our eyes and covered our ears and said, that can't possibly apply to him. So we understood, but we rejected it. And the Jewish nation, he says, is still continuing to reject him. And you know what they did? They took an innocent man who was told he was innocent by Pilate, and they executed him. And now you have relied on Abraham, and you've relied on David, and you've relied on all your past, and thinking that those great patriarchs are the ones that are going to save you. Well, let me tell you this morning, they're dead and their bodies are decaying, but not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Holy One, who they rejected, He's alive this morning. His grave is empty. His body's not decaying. He is in heaven, and He will free anyone who believes from the bondage of sin. And that's where it starts to get powerful, because then we see the reaction, and the reaction is very interesting. There are two distinct reactions. And they say something about the state of our heart. And they say something about the evidence of our conviction. Look at verse 42. Let's read some more. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Now a week passes between 43 and 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, speaking of the Jews. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, when Paul finishes his message, notice in verse 42 that as he and Barnabas leave the synagogue, a very important phrase here, the people kept begging them to come back a week later and tell them more. These are people that have been stoked by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it made them hungry. It made them hungry for the truth. It made them eager to hear from the Spirit because they were open to being changed. And I want you to notice the group that this applies to. It's in the middle of verse 43. It says there were many Jews and there were God-fearing proselytes. Proselyte was a Gentile that had converted to Judaism, but these particular proselytes were, were now converts to Christianity. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read through that text, I got stuck on that word begged. They begged for more of God's word. When they heard the word, they said, oh, come on, give us more. We, we, have, to, we have to know more. And, and I asked myself this week, and I asked you this morning, is that the attitude of my heart? Do I have that deep hunger for more of the Lord every day? Am I someone who hungers and thirsts 
after righteousness. Because these people beg. The word's very interesting in the Greek. It means to call to one side and to exhort. Interestingly, it's the exact same word that's used for the Holy Spirit. That he's our paraclete. Paraclete. I can't even pronounce the word. He comes alongside and he exhorts us. That's what they're doing. They're coming along Paul and Barnabas and they're saying, come on, give us more. We need more. We must know more about the Lord. And I want you to notice in the text, the word has an active double emphasis. It says they kept begging. In other words, they didn't stop. It wasn't just like, hey, would you guys come back next Sunday? That was really awesome. We'd love to know more. Bye. We're going to go eat some pita and hummus. As Paul and Barnabas are walking, they're, they're, they're tagging along like a little puppy behind its owner. And they're saying, come on, come on, we need more. All right, we'll be back. No, really, we need more. Come on. I mean, that's, that's what the text is saying. You've got to infuse yourself into it at this point. They weren't satisfied until they were filled with the Lord and his word. And I thought to myself this week, oh, that we would have hunger like that every day. We're so dissatisfied by so many things in life. You want proof of that? When the new iPhone is delivered or the new iPad is delivered, what happens? We race out and get it because we've got to get the next best thing. Because now all of a sudden, the, the iPhone 2, oh, that miserable piece of machinery. How could I have ever owned that? I grew up playing Atari. When I was a kid and you wanted to change the channel, you had to get up and go change the channel. And do you remember UHF? I don't even get me started on UHF. Now I can watch TV right on my phone. Now I can live stream the hockey game. Just sitting right there. Oh, good. There's the game. You see, I'm not, I'm not picking on iPhones. I know a lot of you have them, okay? I'm saying we're dissatisfied by so many things in life. And most of them are centered on what we want and what we don't have. But I pray and hope that our only dissatisfaction in life is that we don't yet have enough of the Lord. I, I just want more of the Lord. What was the last time you ask the Lord to draw near to you without wanting something. When was the last time you prayed without making a single request other than, Lord, be near? You see, we, we get so caught up. I'm not picking this word. I'm just making an observation about our culture. We get so caught up in the next best thing. And the Lord says to us very simply, abide in me and I'll abide in you. Draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. See, the Lord wants to stir up that passion in us this morning. As Paul told Timothy, kindle afresh the gift that is within you. Get that spiritual fire back. Stir up those embers. Believe the truth. Timothy, don't be timid. Get busy about being near the Lord and serving him. Because look at what happened when these people were begging to be close to the Lord. Drop down to verse 49. It says that when they heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying and praising the Lord. 
That's always the indication of a heart that is hungry for the Lord. First of all, we will praise God for His work. And as we praise God for His work, it will inspire confident trust and it will inspire great joy in our hearts that permeates our whole life. And as we praise Him and exalt Him, it will match. It will be matched with a deep humility. That's what glorifying God means. We talk about glorifying God, praise God, exalt God, lift God up on high. Well, guess what? If God's going up on high, where am I going? The key to glorifying God is that it humbles us. It says God is mighty, God is great, God is Lord, and I'm so not. Because as you, it's like a teeter-totter. As you lift him up, you go down. He must increase, I must decrease. You can't both increase because that's contradictory. If you're going to push God down, guess where you're going? It, it is an irrefutable fact. So to really glorify God in our lives, we have to be humbled because to glorify God means to not only praise Him, it means to acknowledge that you and I are nothing. And the opposite then is true. If we elevate self, then we are resisting the lessons of faith and training and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And essentially, listen now, we're fighting against the Lord. If we elevate ourself, we are in the position, and I will back this up in a minute, we are in the position that we are fighting against God. You can see it here in verses 48 to 50. While people are hungry for the Lord and their lives are being changed and the Gentiles are saying, yes, yes, the gospel's for us. And they're praising God and glorifying God and they're humbling themselves. At the same time that's happening, others are battling everything that's going on. Look at how the Holy Spirit describes it in the text. All of these are in verse 45. It says they were filled with jealousy. The word in the Greek literally means that they saw the apostles as rivals. And they did this simply because the crowds were paying attention to Paul and Barnabas and they were compelled by the message of the gospel. It was not because they had done anything wrong. It's no coincidence that the Spirit lists this one first because it's the underlying motivation for everything that follows. Jealousy messes up our minds. It causes us to resent and to criticize and to be frustrated with other people because they're doing something that's, that's honoring to the Lord or that's getting some sort of attention that they don't really want or whatever the case may be. But when we are jealous, it changes relationships and it causes illness in the body. So when we are jealous, what we have to do is we have to confess that immediately to the Lord and say, Lord, break me of my pride. Because when we are jealous and we let it go, look at the text, verse 45, we act in ways that are displeasing to the Lord and we choose methods of opposition that try to win people back to us. It's exactly what the Jews do here. They look and they see these huge crowds and they're all coming to the synagogue to hear the word of the Lord, not to hear Paul and Barnabas, but to hear the word of the Lord. And they're standing there and they're going, why can't we get this kind of crowd? Why won't the people come to the synagogue on a regular basis? Why are they coming out right now? And they're standing over there and they're spitting 
anger and hostility and they're resentful and they say, we've got to get the crowd back on our side. We've got to sway them back to us. So filled with jealousy, look what they do. They begin to contradict the word of God. They deny the words of the gospel and they repudiate the message of God's mercy and they say salvation is not through Jesus Christ. They're saying Jesus Christ is a false prophet. This is an arrogant, hostile position and it's not because the gospel is flawed and it's not because Paul and Barnabas are making a show. It is simply because they know they're wrong and to admit that they will lose their popularity and their credibility. That's why they reject it. And it's a position that many people take this morning toward the gospel because they don't want to be seen as wrong. Don't ever, I encourage you, I've done this in my own life, don't ever be stubborn enough to resist the work of the Lord because you don't want to be seen as wrong. Because to take that position, you can't do it passively. And we see that at the end of verse 45. They were filled with jealousy. They began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. And third, they were blaspheming. The word there in the Greek is very strong. It means to speak with intent to harm. It means to malign a person's character and to make false statements about them. So this wasn't necessarily blasphemy against God and against God's word, even though that's implied. This is personal slander against Paul and Barnabas. You ever had somebody do that to you? To lie about you, about what you did, to misrepresent you, to accuse you, to try to discredit you even though you didn't do anything wrong. That that hurts, doesn't it? But that's how the enemy works to try to counteract the gospel. That's what he does to try to discourage people from maturing spiritually and loving the Lord more. And even knowing the nature of that spiritual warfare, notice in the text that Paul and Barnabas had to be shocked by the level of hostility from these Jews. And they had to be concerned that those who were trusting the Lord might be dissuaded from continuing in their faith. That's why you see Paul's reaction. Look at it. It's in verse, um, let me find it, verse 46. That's why it says they spoke out so boldly. They don't just sit back and go, wow, you guys are really upset with us. We better back off. They go right at it and say, this is what we're saying. You're proving our point. You're proving that you are out of fellowship. And then verse 50, notice the next line of attack, which is very predictable. They go to the people who took pride in their religiosity and who are popular and powerful. They go to the devout women of prominence. Sounds like a bad social club. We are the devout women of prominence. Can't you just see those ladies? And they go to the leading men of the city. In other words, they try to incite all the players in the town. They try to leverage the social power and influence. And this is one of the enemy's favorite tricks. Listen very carefully here. One of the enemy's favorite tricks is to say to you, you're not hanging out with the cool people. And because you're not hanging out with the cool people, You can't be right. Don't fall for it because it's a lie. Our goal is not to please man and get his approval, but to please the Lord and get his approval. And what is so tragic about this opposition that they instigate 
is they're not only trying to stop the gospel, but, but they're blocking their own hearts from receiving what God was doing. And I was trying to think about a title for this message. It came to me pretty quickly that it should be begging or battling. And I really sought the Lord for that second word. I really waited on him. Because I wanted to make sure that the Spirit told me the right word to convey what's happening in the text and what we sometimes do with the Lord. How many times do you and I strive against his conviction? How many times when the Lord is leading us, even in difficult ways, we kind of question that and say, Lord, I don't don't know if that's right. Or, Or when God calls us to be broken of our pride and our arrogance and our stubbornness, how often do we put up resistance and say, I don't really feel like doing that. I don't know about you, but I do it a lot. But listen, the last position we want to be in is battling against the Lord. The last position you want to be in this week is battling against the Lord, and it often is very subtle. That's why we need to take heed to ourselves and guard our hearts and minds and confess immediately when we rebel. Because here is the unvarnished truth. Every battle against the Lord is sourced in us wanting to get our way. Every battle against the Lord is sourced in us wanting to get our way. That's why God says in Hebrews chapter 11, I will resist the proud. And the verse there literally means, and you've heard this before, that God puts on his full battle gear to fight us. Oh, Jesus is loving and he's forgiving and he's patient and he's kind and he's compassionate. But when he smells hell on us, he fights it. He will not tolerate it. He will not put up with it. And if we're going to go to battle with the Lord because we want our way and we want our pride to be elevated, we can expect that he will put on all his armor and he will fight that pride and he will break us of our resistance. But then there's the second part of the word, when we are humble before him, when we're begging and rejoicing and glorifying him, he says, I will pour out my grace upon your life. See, the, the contrast is so clear in these last nine verses. Look back at verse 44 for a second. The next week, the whole city comes out. You saw the picture of the area. Imagine that scene. Close your eyes and try to picture it. As all the people of the city come out, moms, dads, children, old people, young people, scholars, new converts, religious Jews, they're all jamming into the synagogue and the area around it. And and as the crowd is assembling, the Jews are jealous and they take a stand of opposition and they start to stir up the crowd. That wouldn't have been easy because the people were really ready to hear the gospel but they start to blast the message of the gospel and they start to blaspheme God and his word and and his his servants. And Paul uses that opposition. He says, this is the evidence. This is exactly what I was talking about one week ago when I said when we were in Jerusalem, we were opposing Christ. This is what you need to see. And this is why the gospel now is going to the Gentiles and the Gentiles go wild. As soon as he says that, I love the verse, it's in verse 48, the the crowd cheers. They go crazy. And they start praising God. 
And the Jews get angry. And they drive Paul and Barnabas out of town. And you give a last thought. You've got the Gentiles and some of the Jews and the proselytes that are cheering and praising God and exalting God and magnifying Him and humbling themselves and responding to the gospel. And over on this side, you've got all the Jews who are resistant and so angry that they're about to drive these men out of the district. What you do not see in the text is that no one was indifferent. There was not a third group of people that kind of said, well, we don't really want to beg and believe, and we don't really want to blaspheme and battle. So we're just going to stay neutral. We're going to be Switzerland. See, the gospel doesn't allow for a safe middle ground. The gospel doesn't allow for passive lukewarmness. It says believe or reject. God says in Revelation, don't sit there in the middle. Don't say, I want my cake and I want to eat it too. I want to be my own guy when, when I want to be. And, and when I really need help, I'll call on God. And, and I want to be encouraged on Sundays and kind of build up. And maybe I'll take a class, but, but really I want to do my own thing. So I'm going to live this life and then I'm going to live this life and back and forth and back and forth. And if people ask me, I'll give them kind of a safe PC answer that doesn't really say who I really am. And, and I'm not really going to stand for the gospel. I'll take an interest, but... but No, the gospel never allows for that. And we see this in Pisidia and Antioch. We're done. Some believe. Some rejoice. Some praise God. Others say, get out of our sight. Just get out of here. We don't want you anymore. But what's powerful is, they don't make inroads from the people. Because when your heart is changed... You don't believe the lies of the devil and you don't believe the acts, attacks against what you know is true. You don't get discouraged or disheartened in the extent that you fall back. And we see that Paul and Barnabas leave. Look at it one more time. I know I said I'm done, but I'm going to give this one more verse. Paul and Barnabas leave and they shake off their feet. That was an ancient sign of saying, I don't want to have anything to do more to do with you. They shake off their feet and it says, as they went, They were continually filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Listen, when we're standing for the Lord, we're not going to be discouraged. We're not going to be disheartened. When people attack us, we're not going to say, I don't know what to do. This is miserable. And God told me this was going to happen, but I just, no. uh -uh. The Lord is my strength and my shield. The Lord is my strong deliverer. The Holy Spirit indwells to comfort and guide and help us. We can be strong for the Lord and stand firm for Him. But don't fall back into that soft middle ground. This morning, are you begging? Are you saying, Lord, more of you, more of you, more of you. Every day, I need more of you. I need to be closer to you. Or are you kind of battling the Lord? Still full of self, Paul. I don't know. I, I, I get it. I get what you're saying. But but I, I don't know. I'm still a little indifferent. and I'm just not growing and I don't feel the passion. Listen, if if that's true, you are not spending time in the presence and power of the Lord. You need to get before Him and say, God, work in my life. Let's close our eyes. Just take a minute before the Holy Spirit right now. Let Him speak to your heart.
Which crowd would you have been in in Antioch? Which one would you have walked with? Which one would you have hung out with? I know almost all of us, maybe all of us would say, well, I would have been with the one that begged. But is that evident in your life right now? Would we be the ones that were saying, oh, more of Jesus. More of the word. More of his presence. More of his grace. I don't know where you are with the Lord this morning. I only know where I am with the Lord. But the Lord may be speaking to you right now and drawing you toward himself. And my best counsel as your pastor and your friend is, don't resist it. There is nothing in this life that is worth putting up against the Lord and saying, this is more important to me than you are. So I pray the Lord will do a work in our hearts this morning. Every single one of us. None of us is perfect. None of us is even close. Lord, do a work in our lives this morning. Speak to our hearts and minds. Right now, the enemy is working very hard, Lord, to dissuade us and discourage us and resist us from hearing your truth. We pray against him right now. We pray you would remove his influence and that we would hear from your Holy Spirit. Father, where there is resistance in a heart this morning, I don't know why it would be there, But Lord, it's there. Break that. Lord, may hearts cry out to you. Say, God, do a fresh work in my life. Change my stubbornness. Change my pride. My resistance against you. Lord, give us a a new hunger and thirst for you hunger and thirst for righteousness, a hunger and thirst for your presence. Lord, we're dry. The culture is so strong and the distractions are so many. We don't say that as an excuse, Lord. We say it because we need more of you. I want to encourage you right now, just quietly where you are. You don't have to say anything out loud. You don't have to raise a hand. You don't have to come forward. Just between you and the Lord. If the Lord's speaking to you right now, and he's calling you to desire more of him. Just ask him for that right now. Lord, I need more of you. I need less of self. Teach me that every day. Convict me of that every day. I want to be one of the ones that begs that says, Lord, come alongside me. And I pray this morning that if you're praying that prayer in your heart, that that prayer is sincere. Be easy as we walk out the door this morning because the enemy will start to attack and he'll start to create doubt. and He'll say, that was a decision in the moment. That was, that was emotionalism. So if you're going to pray that prayer this morning, pray it sincerely. Lord, tomorrow more of you. Tuesday, more of you. Wednesday, more of you. If 
Father, do this work in our lives. We need you so badly. You have redeemed us and saved us and called us your own. Now fill us again and again with your spirit. Lord, we love you and we're anxious to see the work that you're going to do in and through us and in and through this body as we draw closer to you. We praise you and exalt you this morning and we love you. In the name of Jesus, amen.